Some of you are aware that I've spent the past three years teaching full-time across the street at Indiana Wesleyan. And in my first year at that post, I was asked what general education course in the School of Theology and Ministry I best felt equipped to take on into my course loading as a regular practice each semester. That's a common thing for faculty. So I went away and I thought about this and I came back to the table and I said, I think teaching gen ed theology would be a good fit for me. The response I got was, okay, how about Old Testament survey? (laughs) Ah, okay, a little fear and trepidation taking place there. But really, in the end, it ended up being one of my very favorite classes to teach. And so when Pastor Steve announced that we were gonna spend the summer in the Minor Prophets, my head and my heart went back to the classroom And a question that I postured each semester to my students as we entered the unit on the prophets, I would say to them, what readily comes to mind when you think of an Old Testament prophet? You can imagine the answers were rich. I readily and regularly heard things like old man, long white beard, angry. Strangely enough, I regularly heard megaphone, because those were so common in the pre-Christ era, I'm sure. Then I heard more creative answers, things like crazy eyes. One kid said hollering. (laughs) Somebody said dirty feet. Not so sure about that one. I'm not really sure my imagination is strong enough to hang with all of their perception of the the prophets. Uh, But after going through these prophets that we've already explored this summer, I think I can see where they're coming from to some degree. Because let's face it, the prophets are not the friendliest voices we have in the Bible, are they? Don't get me wrong, I kind of resonate with a tough love mentality in general. I don't know if this is because I'm a Gen Xer and so many of us were latchkey kids who had to have a suck it up and do it yourself attitude much of the time, or because I've spent a lot of my life invested in athletics where you just learn quickly that you have to put in the hard work if you want to see results. But for whatever reason, I do not recoil from the no-nonsense, to-the-point manner in which the prophets speak to Israel. They just kind of cut the fluff and get to the heart of the matter, and I kind of like it. But then we get to the end of the Old Testament, and there's Zechariah. Now, a few of you are too young to remember this, I realize, but when I was a kid, there was this recurring bit on Sesame Street where four images would come up on the screen. And the song would start to play in the background where we would be asked, which of these things just doesn't belong here? Anybody remember that? The point of this was not to ostracize anyone or diminish anything, but rather to help kids learn how to identify what was different in a series of images or sequences. And so I think were we to line up the minor prophets in such a lineup, Zechariah might qualify for the thing that doesn't quite belong. Because while so many of the other minor prophets come across a little like Bob Knight or John McEnroe, you know, wild-eyed, spewing at the mouth, throwing proverbial things across the room, saying the same thing over and over and over again to a crowd who either doesn't seem to be listening or certainly isn't getting the point, Zachariah seems to take a slightly different approach. It might be better said that God took a slightly different approach through his mouthpiece, Zechariah. And you don't have to get very far into this book to see what I'm talking about. I'll start right at chapter one. From the beginning, Zechariah says, then the angel of the Lord said, 
Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? Pause there for just a second for a little context. Remember, Israel has been exiled from Jerusalem, its homeland, and dispersed into foreign nations where it's ruled by its enemies. They've been banished for seven decades. And so many of the prophets are writing to us from their various places of captivity. But Zechariah is one of the Israelites who has been allowed to return back to Judea along with the group that's led by Zerubbabel. And this group has been commissioned or charged with the rebuilding of the temple as a first act of reestablishing the life of Israel and its homeland. So he's writing these words upon his return from captivity. I'm gonna keep reading at verse 13. He says, so the Lord spoke, here it is, kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry. I love that part. But they went too far with the punishment. He goes on, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Can you hear it? These words aren't so much fire and brimstone as they are promise and inspiration. When I read Zechariah, I don't think so much Dr. Doom as I think of Mr. Rogers. It's an interesting comparison. He's not so much a, a, a disciplinarian and a hollerer, as my student would say, but I see him as more of a cheerleader and an exhorter. And so appropriately, in the lineup of minor prophets, Zechariah historically has often been known as the prophet of hope. Prophet of hope. What a great title to have, right? What a great role to be tapped to play. Because in the midst of a group of people who have experienced the complete devastation and destruction of their homeland, people who have been exiled for 70 years and who now find themselves trying to rebuild the centerpiece of their religious community only to be met with unreal obstacles and challenge in doing so, well, who wouldn't want to be the positive poly to that group? Let's face it. No matter the tone of your message, being a prophet was not for the faint of heart. We had guys like Zephaniah and Haggai and Amos and Malachi, and they had these difficult messages of God's judgment and wrath to deliver. But I guess I wonder if after a while, like say 70 years, they might've started to look around at themselves and their situation and started to say, okay, well, we made our bed, so here we are lying in it. But Zechariah is this guy in the middle of people who, yeah, they were banished, but then they were told, come on home. They were commissioned by God to rebuild the center of Israel's religious life, the temple, and then immediately, bam, met with obstacles that we cannot imagine. So many obstacles, in fact, that we're told that they just stopped building for 20 years. They got the foundation laid and then went, we're out of here. The obstacles are too great. 
There is too much oppression coming from our enemies here. And amidst all that, Zechariah is told to tell these people, take heart, guys, chins up, have hope. I kind of started to wonder if Zechariah had the hardest task of all of the prophets. Because having hope, let alone spreading hope in the midst of adversity and despair and waiting, as we considered last week, is really, really hard work. Why is that so? Why? I mean, isn't it in the darkest moments of our lives when we should cling most desperately to hope? I can't tell you how many times I've stood at a bedside in the hospital or in a courtroom or at a casket and thought to myself, I have no idea how people do this without the hope of Jesus Christ. I really don't. And yet it seems that it's most often in our darkest moments, we are most prone to forget our hope, to allow our current circumstances and situations to crush us, to overwhelm us. Hardship threatens hope to be sure. And Zachariah's audience was certainly no stranger to hardship by this point in the story. Because with each year of Israel's exile, the brilliance of hope's light had unquestionably diminished as generation after generation must have grown deeper and deeper into wondering if their forefathers' offenses against God had left them in a place where they had been forgotten, forsaken by the Almighty, Everything around them would have testified to this fear decade after decade. And this is what Zechariah was called to speak into, to remind these people that hope is not rooted in situation or circumstance. And I think that is why hope is so difficult, why it's such hard work. I confess to you that this has grown increasingly difficult for me in recent years, hope has become increasingly difficult for me. I don't know if it's my personality or if it's something I've learned along the way, but I'm prone to worry. I worry about things that are mine to own. I worry about things that are yours to own. I'm a good worrier. <laughs> but in 2019, I had grown so overcome and heavy with fear and despair for our world and our culture that I made this radical decision. I just decided I was turning off all media outlets altogether. I'm looking at everything here. I got rid of social media, no newspapers came into my line of sight. I turned off the radio, no television broadcasts, all of it gone. And I went so far as to uh, replace the time in my life when I might've otherwise had the news broadcast on in the background, you know, like when you're cooking dinner, you're folding laundry and you just have it going. Well, I put on an old 2000s political drama instead in the background. I just played it over and over again so it would fill that space. The problem was that I soon became out of touch with reality. And this all became evident one night at the dinner table when my family decided to start talking about some current event. I decided I would chime in. <laughs> After I'd made my contribution to the conversation politely, one of my kids said, uh, mom, what are you talking about? Because I began confusing the characters and the situation from the television show with reality. I was doing it very naturally, I might add. And it suddenly became very obvious that I had a problem. 
a hope problem. I had grown incapable of lifting my eyes beyond the immediate circumstances and surroundings of this world that I was living in to the promises of the God that I professed I believed in. I'd lost hope. And so I created this alternative insular cocoon for myself where little effort was required of me offensively because I just defensively built a fortress around myself where I never had to lift my gaze beyond the immediate. I was ignoring reality altogether. And as ridiculous as that scenario might sound, it was really jarring to me. And it launched me into this journey of restoring my understanding that hope requires me to trust that God is who God says he is and not allow myself to be overtaken by life's immediate circumstances, but to keep my eyes fixed on what God has promised will be. I think Zechariah was sent to prophesy to a bunch of people who also had a hope problem. After 70 years of exile and now in the midst of trials and obstacles standing in the way of their making any progress on this hoped for rebuild of their homeland, he says to them, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and they too will be my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord of heaven's army sent me to you. The land of Judah will be the Lord's special possession in the Holy Land and he will once again choose Jerusalem to be his own city. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling." Each of us in this room today is on a different journey related to hardship and adversity and waiting, I'm well aware. And I don't presume here that my journey is the same as yours. But I do think that Zachariah's words remind us that hope is far more than wishful thinking. It's rooted in the nature and character of our God. It's what sustains us in the midst of exile and hardship. Hope propels us there, away from here, to a promised future that's rooted in our trustworthy and faithful God. And so as we commit ourselves to look beyond the here and now to this promise of where God is leading, I think another reason why hope can be so difficult is that as humans, we wanna control the pathway or the method by which we arrive at God's preferred future. Any other control freaks out there? Uh, this hope-related issue gets addressed when Zechariah confronts the two leaders of the temple rebuilding projects. Their name are Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And these guys are classic implementers because they've been given a vision of what was supposed to happen. They're to restore the glory of Israel, the temple, the place where God will dwell amongst his chosen people. And gosh, golly, they're gonna bring this to fruition. They're gonna get it done. I love these guys. Because nothing says awesome in my mind than people who take initiative and get it done. And these are people who are really a reflection of us, right? Jeshua is a priest. Zerubbabel is a governor. He's a layperson. But regardless of their position, the reality is that we see here is that control is an obstacle to hope. And so often, even when we believe in the hope 
that is offered to us in God's promises, we're prone to want to move things along, to immediately try to stick things into fifth gear and to direct the path towards the promised future in a way that suits our preferences and our pace without yielding to the ways and the wisdom of the one who defined the destination in the first place. If you read this entire story, then you know that many of the people who saw the foundation of this second temple being laid wept and they mourned because it was nothing even close to the grandeur of Solomon's temple, their temple prior to the exile. So there's all kinds of assumption happening here that something was wrong. Either God was never gonna restore his glory fully, never return wholly to Israel, or that these leaders just didn't know what they were doing. Surely this was not the path or the process that, that would lead to this promised future God had given them. And it's such a great example of how our preferred paths towards God's promises can make hope difficult. Here's a group of people fixated on the path of the temple when, as we'll read later in the chapters of Zechariah, we find out that the pathway to this promise of God's hope is actually rooted in a Messiah, in the building of a kingdom. And so Zechariah's message is aimed at helping these people see a bigger picture of what God is at work doing here. And it's about so much more than the restoration of a building or a nation it's about the redemption of the world. Zechariah's calling is to remind his, his colleagues, his comrades, and specific, specifically those leading the charge, that the promise of God would be fulfilled, but that no manner of brute strength or force or smarts coming from a human being would supersede the means of God in delivering them to this promised destination not by force, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Hope requires patience and it requires trust that while the path of God may not seem logical or preferred to us in our immediate circumstances, it is trustworthy and it is wise and it is ultimately designed for our benefit even when it doesn't match our own quick, comfortable, preferred, rational roadmap. I'll offer you one more reason why I think hope is so challenging. And for me, I think this is the hardest reason to swallow. It's because I forget the promises of God. It sounds pretty simple, but I wonder if it's one of the most important aspects of Zachariah's calling. It's one of the reasons that he was supposed to share this message of hope to Israel. He wasn't only to give it to them in their moments of crisis and need, but on the daily. And as I've read and reread this book in the last couple of weeks, I've reflected quite a bit on how often I really only do the hard work of hope in times of difficulty. Only in times of trial am I really diligent about putting forth the effort towards lifting my gaze beyond the immediate and setting my focus on the hope of God in a disciplined way. And it got me thinking, would this become more natural, more of an extension of my soul, 
where I had to discipline myself to truly spend time focused on God's promises and the hope of what he has assured me will be true, not only in my moments of trial and need, but on the days when my life seems pretty great. When I am neither overwhelmed with jubilation nor despair, if then I was intentional about focusing on the promise of God, would I then become, would it then become a more natural extension of my being and more core to who I am? Very few people would sign up to run a marathon without doing any training. If you do it, you're either a glutton for punishment or you're in this very small sliver of life's window that will allow you to be able to do something crazy like that. Uh, but the point is, uh, you have to work up to this kind of performance, right? Over time, you develop the muscle and the stamina so that on the day of the race, you can actually live in to the investment that you've made. This is not rocket science. Uh, hope is like a muscle. And so we have to intentionally seek to develop it to perform in certain key moments. But this takes time and discipline and practice Engaging hope, not only in times of crisis, but in each and every day of our lives. So the question becomes, how do we do that? Well, something like five or 600 years after Zechariah offered his prophecy of hope, the apostle Peter penned a letter of hope to the New Testament church. Both of these guys, these encouragers, faced the same challenge. That is that hope is really hard work. But just as hope was central to Zechariah's message to Israel, it remains central to followers of Jesus after his death and resurrection. And it's central to our faith as Christians living in this world today. And so Peter helps us understand a bit of what hope requires of us. For starters, he tells us that hope requires faith. Pastor Steve talked about this last week. Faith is the substance of hope. And so Peter writes, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just as Israel had to have faith that God would fulfill his covenant with them, no matter the manner in which the path uh, was playing out towards that end, we have to exercise faith and trust that our, that our hope is found in Jesus, who is actively pursuing and transforming us, regardless of how broken and messed up this world around us may seem. So hope requires faith. We're also told that hope requires preparation. Peter, like Zechariah, encouraged the church to, to be alert, to be ready, because again, the path that God will lead us on towards the promised future likely will not be instinctive. It's gonna require us to yield ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit rather than leaning on our own preferences or logic or schedule or even experience from the past. 
And the kind of preparation that Peter is talking about here is much like the building of the temple. It's anything but passive. It's active preparation. The the word for alert here in the Greek literally refers to physical preparation. So Peter calls us to stay on the balls of our feet, leaned in, ready for whatever next step God may call us to, no matter how challenging or how difficult it may seem. Trusting, hoping, that God is moving us towards his promised future. Thirdly, Peter tells us that hope requires participation. It's a fun fact for all the word nerds in the room. That word hope in English is connected to the word hop, which means to leap in expectation. So hope is an expectant leap forward. It requires our involvement. It's not us waiting around for God to take action. And one time Tim Keller addressed this active nature of hope. He said that Christian hope moves toward the pain and suffering in the world. It compels us towards love, as Peter describes here, towards the places and the spaces in this world where we see dissonance between our immediate surroundings and what we believe is true of God's kingdom. Hope involves us, it enacts us in the part of the Lord's prayer where we say, on earth as it is in heaven, in bringing forth God's promised future here, now, today. And in this way, hope becomes less of a noun and more of a verb. It's active in the sense that it requires our faith, our attentiveness or our alertness and our action, our participation. And it's in engaging these aspects of hope that we live into the will of God, the promises of God, emulating Jesus Christ, who Peter tells us is our living hope.